Greetings, Captain. Spock! What are you doing in this neck of the woods? I have been monitoring your progress. I'm flattered. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts are best that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to the Sequel Cast. The Sequel Cast is a podcast that looks at movies and a franchise one film at a time. We are in the middle of looking at the Star Trek films. This time around, we're looking at the only one that William Shatner, yes, Captain Kirk himself, directed. Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, came out in 1989 with a screenplay by David Lowry and cinematography by Andrew Laszlo with music by Jerry Goldsmith. I'm Matt. With me is Thrasher. (laughs) Welcome. What if God was one of us? Uh, the sequel cast is a proud <laughs> member of the Battleship Retention podcast fleet. You can check out other great TV and film podcasts at battleshipretention.com. And our theme song you just heard was written and performed with uh, by Mark with a C. Check out his music at markwiththec.com, including his latest album, An Introduction to Mark with a C, uh, fan-picked selections of his favorite tracks, over at markwiththec.com. So yeah, Star Trek V, uh, the classic Star Trek argument, at least with the... Uh, Star Trek film starring the original series cast is which is the worst film? Star Trek V, Final Frontier, or Star Trek One, the motion picture? Well, I don't as 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 not good as this movie is, I am not willing to say that Star Trek uh five is the worst film in this series. Even with the ones with the original cast members in it. Yeah, uh, yes. Okay. I um you know, I like this more as I get older, but I can understand why people hate it at the same time. I only saw this uh, movie for the first time in the early 2000s when I was collecting the special editions of the Star Trek DVDs in college. So, and you saw Star Trek V, I presume, for the first time in your Star Trek box set? Actually, I think I saw it on TV uh, before then. I don't know if, or it might not have been TV, it might have been HBO, but I know I did see this before uh before we had got that box set but at the same time i at the i at that that age i totally did not get what i was watching and, and the only thing i remember from seeing it at that age was just was the ending itself i don't i as a kid i didn't remember any of the stuff leading up to the climax mm-hmm. and you know reportedly part of william shatner's contract for star trek 4 is that he would be guaranteed to direct star trek 5 and it's not a bad clause to work into your contract. No, and I mean, this film was was compromised on a number of levels. Although I think there's huge problems with the core story. But you know originally what the concept was? No, lay it on me. Okay. Glad you asked. Um, the search for God it w- was always central to the concept, but the climax was that God would initially uh, present himself as an angel, which would quickly reveal himself to be Lucifer, literally the devil. And oh, yes. Spock, uh, Bones, and Kirk would would fight the devil and his evil rock monsters. 
and uh, and escape and by the devil revealing himself if devil exists then therefore god has to exist which and, is an interesting notion and, oh yeah and and the thing is like it's it's even fr- from the original series uh star trek has long had uh has you know long you know dealt with divine themes and there's any number of episodes where they encounter beings that think that they are gods, beings that claim to be gods, beings that impersonated gods, beings that were worshipped as gods. Uh, that it really is appropriate that they would that they would you know go back to that well eventually in one of the films. Uh, I just wish the execution was better. I mean, you look at all this stuff with Star Trek Five. You have a lot of grand ideas, and uh, William Shatner had some directing experience. He directed several episodes of his T.J. Hooker TV show. Um, but I do think at least William Shatner visually does interesting things with this film and tries to really do something different, um, for better well, or for worse. Well, he, he's certainly not an incompetent director. Uh, I, I think that, cause I've seen, I've seen several things he, he's, he's directed, including the premiere episode of Perversions of Science, uh, the, the long lost follow up to, to, to uh, Tales from the Crypt, and he, the episode he directed is actually quite good. But like any, anything I've seen him direct, the best stuff he's directed has all been stuff on a very small scale. Mm. Like he's he sort of, and I mean this with no disrespect, but he he's a television director, not a movie director. Uh, and I think where right. where he falters is where he when he tries to go big and cinematic. Uh, his directing looks best when it's tightly focused. You know, it's interesting you say that. I was watching a lot of the documentaries on the DVD and Blu-ray to prepare for this show. And uh, producer Harv Bennett, who also produced Star Trek 2 through 4, um, said William Shatner as a movie director still had the ego of a movie star and that he wanted to do everything grand on a huge scale. And meanwhile, as a producer, your job is to keep things on budget and on time. Now, do you remember uh, this was... I guess this was yeah this this would have been uh, shortly after my uh, my graduation with the Savannah College of Art and Design when uh, I went up to visit you in Atlanta and we went to Dragon Con. Yeah, is that where you stayed with me because you got vertigo from the hotel? Yeah, yeah, the, yes, that, okay. Okay, L- ladies and gentlemen, I only have two and a half medical problems, and one of them is vertigo. <laughs> well, to be and, fair, uh, the, the hotels that Dragon Con is such a big convention, I think it's the biggest in the southeast United States. Oh, yeah. It takes over two hotels. Which... But, but we really... Well, the one thing I, rem- I really remember fondly from that trip is you and I, we really bonded watching the DVD special features with oh, all yes. the interviews with Shatner oh, for yeah, Star definitely. Trek Five. That was, that was a riot. Yeah. And you just... How, how batshit insane he seemed <laughs> to go. Yeah, and that's consistent whether it's stuff that was filmed at the time and, um, you know, the more recent things they filmed for that DVD in, what, 2003 or 2004 it would have been, I guess. So it is, and with William Shatner, the way he he talks in interviews, you're not quite sure whether he's putting you on. It's uh, his delivery, and, you know, since he's recently uh, directed quite a lot of documentaries for the Epics um, movie uh, channel, and, in fact, is currently wrapping up a documentary about the first two seasons of Star Trek Next Generation, of all things. 
well, you know what? It, what I think it is that, and the more the more I see Shatner, the more I realize that William Shatner is a character that William Shatner plays twenty four hours a day, much like John Lovitz is a character John Lovitz plays all the time. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, we were talking earlier about some compromises with what the original story of this was to be. There was also a writer's strike at the time, mm-hmm. so the script, you know, with all the unions and writers' guild and all that stuff, was contractually obligated to not change after a certain point and the studio had the script heavily modified while William Shatner was filming another movie mm. and when he came back you know there was the writer strike and he was stuck into using that script and uh, also beyond that uh, Industrial Light and Magic who had done the special effects for the other Star Trek films were all tied up they were busy that year doing uh, special effects for Indiana Jones 3 and Back to the Future 2 and all that stuff which would then go up against this film in the box office. Uh-huh. So, with all that in mind, I mean, they shopped it to a, uh, a two-bit special effects operation out of uh, New Jersey is the one they ended up going with. And these guys had done special effects for a film called Altered State, but not nothing big with the model work. And um, the effects in this look notably cheaper. Yeah, they're not they're not quite uh, up up to par with the other films in the Star Trek series, uh, and and even then, like some of the the sets, like this movie, in a lot of ways, it feels like the Enterprise crew is exploring a different movie. Well, let's let's get into uh, the beginning of this film, where it takes place. It's uh, kind of mysterious on this planet of uh, what Nimbus Nimbus Five. What is it? Nimbus three. Nimbus three. Nimbus three. And it looks almost like a like a western. You see uh, a, a bald man who looks like he could be from one of the Mad Max films is approached on horseback by a hooded a hooded figure who relieves him of his pain and pulls back the hood to reveal that in fact he is a, a Vulcan, but not just a Vulcan, a Vulcan who laughs. Which, if you're heavily invested in Star Trek, would have come as quite a shock. They do hold on that laugh for quite a long time. Yeah, it all, it all, <laughs> yeah, what's supposed to come as a shock kind of becomes comical because of how long they hold on it. And this character is Cybok, who they soon reveal to be, uh, well, not soon, but later in the film. The trailer certainly revealed this to everyone that Cybok is Spock's uh, half brother. Yeah, it's, and that's, that's one thing that I don't like about this movie, uh, you know, because I don't think, I don't think they have to. I think the story could work just as well uh, if Cybok is just another Vulcan and not a blood relation of Spock. Because it does, it does kind of bring up that whole issue. Oh, Jim, my closest friend who I tell everything to. Well, I never mentioned that I have a half-brother. I don't know why my Spock sounds like Lorne Michaels. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, originally, the actor they almost had cast as Cybok. Do you know this, Thrasher? Sean Connery. Sean Connery, right. And do you think that would have been too distracting, or do you think it would have brought more gravitas to the part than um, Lawrence Luckinbill? I think it would have brought a hell of a lot of gravitas to the part. I I, I would have loved to have seen uh, Sean Connery playing a Vulcan. Uh, and as I understand it, that, that, that that's why the planet that Cybok is searching for is called Shakari. Yes, is they just they just clipped off the first part of uh, or they, they did every other syllable in Sean Connery's name. It's a pun off of Sean Connery. Sean Connery, Shakari, right? Um, yeah, no, it would have been cool to see Sean Connery. I'm Shybok, your brother Spock. Do you remember her father Spock? 
I can take away your pain. I'll take your pain away. Yes, yes. Like it's like Pete just said, fuck the pain away. <laughs> Suck it on my titties like you wanted them. Calling all the time. Check out my Chrissy behind. <laughs> it's but and you go from that to an opening credit sequence. Um, that's uh, Captain Kirk climbing El Cap, El Capitan, <laughs> on shore leave, uh, presumably. Uh, a little on the nose, but. I actually find something very, very charming about the Enterprise crew having shore leave and going to a national park, or I guess a planet, I guess at this point a planetary park uh, on Earth. Yeah, you know, I think another problem this Star Trek V had against it is by the time this film came out, you had Star Trek The Next Generation was on TV for a year or two, I think. Had it started? I thought, I thought yeah. Next Generation wouldn't start for another year. Let's uh, let's look this up. Look this. Uh, hello, computer. Uh, we're looking up uh, something about Star Trek. Star Trek. Uh, Holy hell! It premiered in eighty-seven. Eighty-seven. So yeah. So this would have been. It's um, you know, just after the second season of TNG is when Star Trek Five would have come out. So people, as the Star Trek crew they had in mind, would have had the the newer TV series in mind, and then all these the old guys are still doing the movies. You know, now that I think about it, now knowing that, looking back on it, I think it's kind of shocking that this movie isn't the original series Next Generation crossover. Well, we'll talk a, a bit about that for uh, next week's episode for Star Trek VI, The mm. Undiscovered Country, because at one point that was going to be Next Generation film, at one point it was going to be a prequel about Spock and... Uh, Kirk and Starfleet Academy. Yeah, it's, it seems it seems like every star every new Star Trek project goes through a phase where it's about Starfleet Academy. <laughs> yep, it's just part of the life cycle of any Star Trek property. So this film is is more humorous because Star Trek Four, well, was the most successful film uh, in the series to date by far. So they were told to keep it light, keep it funny. Which which is probably, which doesn't quite work since since the big story is about literally trying to find God. Uh, and, and like I feel, I feel like that should be at its core a much more st- serious story with the occasional lighthearted moment. I, I find that the comedy in this film really clashes with everything else. And ironically, in an interview uh, for the DVD about Star Trek V... William Shatner claims that Star Trek is at its best when it's at its most serious. Mm. And you look at this film, and it's like, well, this is the Star Trek film you made, uh, Mr. Shatner, is very broad in humor. Maybe all that was foisted upon the studio. Maybe he wanted to really... Uh, well, I, I, know, wanted something I think I know why he says that, though, because it's in the most serious episodes that he gets to give the most speeches. <laughs> that could be. That could be indeed. I mean, what do you think of this, the comedic business throughout the film, especially in the beginning with um, Sulu and Chekhov in the woods and they're lost? It's, I, I it, it kind of, it, it's, it, it falls a bit flat to me. And it is kind of difficult to imagine anyone getting lost on Earth in Star, in Star Trek. Hmm. The thing that always sticks in my mind are Spock's rocket boots. Yeah. That that really feels kind of toyetic. 
and it doesn't it doesn't quite see, like I could I could totally get behind like an anti gravity belt, but just like rocket boots just doesn't seem like a piece of Star Trek technology. It's it's a cheap looking effect that they use several times throughout the film of Spock on those boots, and you, you get some wordplay that's kind of cute, but just the timing it doesn't seem as sharp as it could be. Or he's hanging on the cliff, and Spock's like, "Oh, I do see," and uh, Kirk says. I don't think you understand the gravity of this situation. And Spock says, Captain, gravity is foremost on my mind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it, sh- it should be a delightful, lighthearted exchange, but it doesn't, it doesn't seem like two best friends on vacation. It seems like two actors reading lines. Leonard Nimoy seems grumpy he did not get to direct this film. I think, I think, he's, just, I think he's just ready to be done with Star Trek. That could be. He seems very tired and stares off in the distance at several points during scenes. Yeah, and I, and I guess that you know, there's also there's also the issue is that if he had directed the last Star Trek movie, the series would have gone out on a high note. I think he's aware yeah, of right. how troubled this production's going to be. Well, even in the scripting stage, there was big problems about how to sell this moment where um, Cybok eventually. No, before we get to that. What do you think of the concept of the this peace planet, Nimbus 3? The peace planet? It's supposed to be a planet of peace in Eden that- where representatives from the different governments will meet and figure out how to solve their differences. Well, two, two problems. One, doesn't Starfleet already do that? And two... That sounds like something that the local J that the, the Nimbus Three JCs would have come up with. Like, hey, we're the planet of peace. Come on down, bring your delegations. But it's all just a way to increase like tourism dollars on their planet. And the planet looks like a shithole. And just like in uh, Star Trek Three, you get a shitty version of the Star Wars Cantina. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's another thing. Again, it feels like it feels like they dropped. You know what? It, it feels like it feels like they dropped a sci-fi bar from a Charles Band movie into this movie. You have a pool table where it's literally a pool of water. You have a, a cat lady stripper with three breasts, who Kirk later tosses into the pool table full of water. <laughs> Neon, garish neon signs everywhere. Everything looks like it's made out of corrugated metal that they just found. And you get a famed uh, British actor, David Warner, in a small part here as the delegate from, a human delegate from the Federation on the planet, who he later plays the evil Klingon in Star Trek VI. Oh, yes. Which is a much better part for him. Or I could have that wrong. Is that the same actor? Um... Let's find out. We'll go back to our magic research machine, which I like to call the Internet Movie Database. Let's see what was the name of the uh, you know, Klingon. He, he was one of the. Uh, he was one of the. He wasn't the main Klingon, but he was in there as a Klingon. Ah, I think as a Chancellor Gorkon, but Christopher Plummer is the one who played the main Klingon in that film. Oh yes, but David Warner still it apart. I love him in Time Bandits. Oh, he, he's very good in Twin Peaks as well. So anyway, this this one scene in Star Trek V that they had big problems scripting because uh, Leonard Nimoy and DeForest Kelly, who played you know Spock and McCoy, had problems with is 
Cybok is, is trying to mutiny the Enterprise. And originally in the script, Cybok was to have hypnotized the whole Enterprise, except for Captain Kirk. And they said, we would not leave the captain. We would not betray the captain. Which I think is a completely fair point. Uh, and also, they've already gone to the villain mind controls, the heroes well, in uh, Wrath of Khan. But then do you, do you buy it where uh, Spock has the opportunity to shoot Cybok, his half-brother, and Kirk yells at him, shoot him, shoot him, and he doesn't. He says, I cannot kill my brother. Well, I, I kind of, I can buy Spock not shooting him, uh, only because, uh, but but not so much because it, it involves his relationship with Kirk, just that Spock isn't the type of guy to resort to murder. I think Spock would, Spock would want to, the, the, would, would sort of want to pursue the sort of the path of least resistance, more logical option of disabling Cybok and then bringing him in to face Federation justice. Mm. That, that's, that's kind of how I justify the way that scene plays out. Although that being said, don't their weapons have a stun setting? They do. They could have stunned him and uh, maybe transported him to the nearest jail, jail cell or... Well, yeah, they've got those. I mean, they've got the the brig on the Enterprise. But I think he takes the gun that Cybok has or one of his flunkies has. So maybe that specific gun doesn't have a phase uh, stun setting. Well, I suppose. But you could always go for the kneecaps. Um, So when this Star Trek film came out, even though it had the highest opening grossing weekend, overall it's gross... Um, in the United States was was the worst of the series to date. Mm. And part of it to blame is this film came out in 1989. So yeah, that was a you, big was year. Big year, awesome big year for sequels at the time. So June 1989, you get um, Star Trek V, Final Frontier, comes out June 9th. Just a few days later, June 13th, you get the next James Bond film, License to Kill, one of the Timothy Dalton ones. A few days later, Ghostbusters 2. A few days after that, you get Batman and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. And then the next week, you get The Karate Kid uh, Part 3. And that's Which all you can within. On sequel cast. On sequel cast, we covered those. And that's all within the month of June. A James Bond film, a Ghostbusters sequel, Batman and Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and a Karate Kid sequel all came out within the three weeks after Star Trek V. And what's kind of nuts about that is despite all those movies coming out in the same month, most of them did very, very well. Yeah, I mean, there were sequels to things the audience uh, audiences wanted to see. Well, also, though, this was, you know, uh, back back in uh, the 80s, it was even though, you know, blockbusters are becoming a bigger and bigger part of, of Hollywood and, and the movie-going experience – uh, it, there wasn't this whole get the movie into theaters, get the movie out of theaters as quickly as possible mentality. A, the, a movie could be in theaters for a month, two months, and could build an audience. It was the first real... I mean, another film that also came out that year was the Disney cartoon Little Mermaid, which was kind of yeah. Disney's big renaissance. Yeah, that's true. That's when, when Disney pulled itself out of the hole it fell into with the uh, Black Cauldron. And Oliver and Company and Great Mouse Detective and... Oh, gosh. Wow, even I forgot about Oliver and Company. 
And you know what's funny? I've been thinking about Dom DeLuise all week, and I remembered Oliver and Company yesterday, which had original songs by Billy Joel. Why do I worry? Why do I care? Uh, uh, I'm a dog, and I got a handkerchief around my neck, and I'm in a cartoon. Um, I I like it. I like it when, like, an impersonation removes all subtext from something. Yep. The literal impersonations. Let's take this uh, opportunity and this lull in the conversation to talk about our website at SequelCast.com. Well, I think that's our high point for this episode. (laughs) It could be for this one. uh, Where you can check out other shows in the SequelCast network, like Sequel Commentary and Video Game SequelCast. If you want to rent a film that we're talking about, you can do it as an Amazon digital rental. Uh, on the right there, we got links. You can rent the films we're talking about, usually between one or two, uh, two or three bucks. Pretty good deal. And um, a good way to listen to SequelCast is streaming. You don't have to wait for it to download. That's right. You can get it streaming off Stitcher Smart Radio. Get the app at stitcher.com slash SequelCast. And the SequelCast Network roster of shows gets added as one of your favorites, because why wouldn't it be? Uh, to help out the show, donate via PayPal at SequelCast.com slash donate. And if you want to buy um, a whiskey flask or something cute like that, get it off of Cafe Press at cafepress.com slash sequelcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at sequelcast. And you can follow me at Internet Mayor. And again, we're part of the Battleship Pretension podcast fleet. They have other great podcasts on there like, well, Battleship Pretension, which is about films and film festivals and that sort of thing. And um, film... Yeah, 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 what am I talking about? Well, we were talking about Star Trek and our website. Yes. But I don't know anymore. I don't We've know. lost oh, oh, the our Facebook way. page is at facebook.com slash sequelcast. If you want to get in contact with us, that's probably the best way uh, to do so. Star Trek V, the final frontier. Okay, so this is something that, that, that always kind of sticks with me. This notion that Cybot can use the mind meld to, to as he describes it, remove your pain which they it's it's sort of like a messianic thing which they try to make sinister because everyone whose pain gets removed gets ridiculously loyal to him but i don't quite understand that because either he's brainwashed he's just flat out brainwashing people as mccoy accuses him of doing and he's just flat out totally evil or he actually is messianic and he actually is healing people's psyches but in in which case, why does why does that necessarily make them loyal to him? I mean, wouldn't there be some people who that might give them the clarity of thought to think that he's crazy? Well, and the um, the book too is just so. What am I talking about? The book? I'm not even thinking straight. <laughs> the script. This, there you go. The script. The libretto for this movie. It's not like the people that follow him around are like that intimidating. They all are kind of like ragtag, scraggly looking people. They're not like um, muscle men. And in the middle of that, you have the Klingon business in the film, which is such an afterthought. Yeah, I guess that's the thing, because all these, presumably all these followers, at least most of these followers, he's gathered from Nimbus 3, the supposed planet of peace, which is a real shithole. It is. Why does the why do people want to have a peace conference on this god awful planet? I think it's supposed to be like maybe it's a it's a trap. They send the worst of the worst. Hey, go to the peace planet. You know that would be it would be, it would be like Greenland. 
oh, Greenland's got to be better than Iceland. Then they get there, and it turns out it's colder and icier. It very well could be. Yeah, and, again, and that's another thing because, you know, uh, Cybot creates a fake hostage crisis in order to get a, to, in, in order to get a Federation ship. But I can think of, like, of so many other easier, simpler, more legal ways he could have gotten a ship for his expedition, such as chartering a ship. Have money, have ship. Surely mm. with all these followers, he could have scraped together enough latinum to, to rent uh, something. That uh, that could be. Also, I guess the other thing is, uh, it it is strange uh, that uh, despite committing mutiny and destroying the Enterprise, Starfleet has no trouble putting Captain Kirk at the helm of another Enterprise. Even though it has issues with it, you know, it's not quite up to stuff, and they they play that for some humor in the film. Well, you know what I feel. You know what I feel like it is. I feel like they had a mothballed ship of the same class, so they just desperately rechristened it Enterprise and pressed it back into service. Maybe so. I, I mean, the main problem I think with this film, and we've talked about several, we need to get onto other segments of the show, is the whole thing is they're trying, as you find out, they're trying to get to uh, Shakari, go beyond the barrier in the center of the galaxy, the Great Barrier. To meet with um, who Cybok believes is to be God. Well, by the time they go through the barrier, you only have 15 minutes left in the film. <laughs> and, yeah, things yeah. do get kind of rushed then. And in a traditional film, maybe this would have happened at the halfway point, and they could have had a bunch of adventures on Shakari. That's kind of true, and it would it would be neat to like have them on a planet like where they they keep seeing like religious allegories because that's that's thing because like because like Shakari it really is just a rocky ball it doesn't look like a place for a Garden of Eden or would it have been more interesting I'm just sort of spitballing here if um, Cybok you know would have taken over the Enterprise with his 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 skills and his wits without a group of followers. And then when he lands on Shakari for the first time, everybody knows who Cybok is. That could be one way to do it. I mean, it's just so... When they get there, you know, it, uh, the climax of this film is just uh, ludicrous. On several levels. Um, however, I do think the scene is where Cybok is trying to convince uh, McCoy and Spock to his side are very, very interesting. That, that's that's true. We do actually get some character stuff happening in those moments, which almost never happens in these older Star Trek films. I guess apart with all the stuff from Spock. We know one one little bit of comical business that I actually do like is when some members of the Enterprise crew are sealed into that cargo bay, and they get a message in old fashioned Morse code, which they translate. Like just barely in enough time to realize that the message is stand back, and they get away from the door before it blows. And Scotty says, "Don't you know a jailbreak when you see one?" I did. Yeah, I did like. The, I do like that whole scene. What about? I know the ship like the back of my hand, and he smacks his head on the scaffolding. That that's kind of lame. And falls down, and the camera tilts down to show him laying on the ground. Yeah, and it's not quite. Yeah, that's that's like if your engineer's doing that, you you might want to put him on medical leave. 
And at the same, although at the, although at the same time, it's not the same enterprise. So I'm sure he has all these habits that don't quite carry over. Do you like the infamous scene of Uhura dancing on Nimbus Five? He, well, okay. Yes, there is a part of me that absolutely loves that scene, but on the other hand, it's like, God damn it, you guys are a professional crew. Surely you could come up with some sort of commando tactics that you could use to take care of these guards. Well, it was a commando tactic. Uhura was dancing commando. Well, okay, you got me. <laughs> although although that also brings up something. Where where did they find the giant fans? And Michelle Nichols' voice is dubbed in that scene, and she was very, very upset. Oh, that's not her singing? No. I mean, she she's released uh, quite a few albums and was an actual uh, dancer in her day. Yeah, that is a, that is a slap to the face, because she has a beautiful singing voice. But no, they, they used some young, unknown pop group to do vocals on top of it. Although, like, I'm, I'm wondering, I'm wondering how that happened because there's like a, a, a the sly part of me is thinking, oh, they did that so they wouldn't have to pay her an ASCAP fee for the performance, but I really don't know. Hmm. You know, I, I've realized I've mentioned ASCAP fees a disproportionate amount of the time on recent sequel casts and sequel commentaries. Why is that? I, I now that I'm aware of them, I see evidence of them everywhere. There is music on film or television. We, um, let's see, I mean, this conflict against God or the God creature at the end is just stupid. Well, it also brings up a, a number of things, because, like, a, a, a giant barrier that prevents you from going somewhere seems like the kind of thing that every race in the galaxy would want to explore, particularly humans and Vulcans and other, other people in Starfleet. So it seems kind of absurd that no one's ever gone through the barrier before, or at least that there isn't, like, already outposts there monitoring it and trying to understand what it is. Yeah, you could have had some sort of a puzzle or something. Instead, they kind of just go through yeah, like that, that's yeah, like what? Well, uh, yeah, there's really there's really no conflict there. They just they just talk up how nothing's been able to get through the barrier or nothing's ever returned, and they just kind of go through it. There's no there's really not much stress on the ship. There's there's no test to see if they're worthy to pass it. It just it seems bizarre. It's like once you get to the the conflict in here. Where they get to the goal of the quest, it just wraps up so quickly and so um, unsatisfyingly. Although I did like a little bit of the dialogue at the end, where they talk about um, see how much the the main trio likes each other, and uh, Kirk is trying to bond with Spock and says, "I thought I lost a brother once. I'm glad to have him back." That's true. That's a, that's a nice kind of touching moment, and, and I also. I find it so charming that they sing uh, Row, Row, Row Your Boat at the end. Yeah, you don't think it could have ended with them on the ship? Well, I think it, you've got to begin it the way it... You've got to have it end the way it begins, and since their introduction is on shore leave on Yosemite, it's got to end with them on shore leave at Yosemite. With a marshmallow synthesizer. Marshmallow synthesizer. Oh yeah, with marshmallow. Oh, bad comedy. Mars Milloys. <laughs> Although I think that's actually another thing. Like after the end of this movie, all like all the stuff that Cybok has done to Spock and McCoy, that all just goes away. It does. It. So I guess like so. I guess they got their pain back, or, or they were able to reconcile, or. 
I don't know. The mystery uh, died with Cyborg. I mean, you could have even had um, the god creature. What if he infiltrated Cyborg's body? That could have been interesting. Yeah, that's true. Taking him out as an avatar mm-hmm. would have been neat. Or or Cyborg trying to mind meld with the god creature would right. have been yes, yes. Would have would have been an interesting moment to go to. Well, uh, we've talked plenty, I think, about Star Trek Five. Why um, does God need a starship? That's a good line of dialogue. That's cute. Um, although, then again, one might as well. Although, the more I think about that, though, the more I think, well, you one might as well ask, why does God need prophets? I give Star Trek Five, the Final Frontier, out of five stars. I give it um, two out of five stars. I think you have a few clever line of dialogues. You have a an intriguing setup that doesn't really go anywhere. And I think, in particular, the scene where Cybok, um reveals McCoy's pain to himself is a very sort of moving, interesting scene. But I just watched this, and I just think the 30-minute documentary on the DVD is much more entertaining than the film itself. Yeah, it is, and you get to see rock monsters. Oh, the rock monster. Yeah, yep. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to give it one and a half stars. I didn't remember how much I don't like this movie until today, as as we've revisited it. Uh, and, and it's a shame because this the movie has it comes from such an interesting premise that's so true to the original series, and the people on screen are trying. It's it's just nothing nothing gels. Hmm. Very interesting. Um. So I mean, let's do a pitch a sequel then. Let's pretend. If it was up to us to decide what they would do after Star Trek V, what would it be? Alrighty, I think I've got one. Go for it. Uh, mine's going to be Star Trek VI, six, six. Where what happens is, uh, you know, they've left a wrathful godlike entity in the core at the core of the galaxy at the end of this movie, uh, and and godlike entities have really long memories. So what happens? is due to meddling caused by Q from Next Generation, who will be brought into this movie, and Trelane from the original series, who was also a godlike being, they accidentally release whatever it is that's imprisoned in the Great Barrier, which starts to just run rampant over the cosmos. uh, And, like... You know, goes to planets, impersonates God, gets worshipped. The psychic energy of the worship makes it more powerful. So... Trelane and Q reluctantly have to go to the original have to go to the original Enterprise crew. Like we're we're sorry, we've accidentally released something terrible on the cosmos that not even we can contain. We need the human factor. We need you guys to help us put this thing back. But of course, Q and Trelane are still Q and Trelane, and there's lots of headbutting uh, between all the various people. Uh, and you know, Trelane is still a kid, and you know, th- you know, really keeps always trying to find the easy way out of the situation by using his godlike powers, which never works quite the way he wants them to. And you know what? In fact, it will in fact end with. Uh, with Spock, who since Spock has had contact with Cybok in The Final Frontier, uh, it, it, the climax of the film is that Spock mind melds with the god entity and uses Cybok's own technique to remove its pain. And this disables the god entity, entity and allows it to go back into the Great Barrier where it's imprisoned again. Sympathy for the devil. I was and what the fuck, Robin Williams can play Trelane. There you go. That'd be funny. Um, oh yes, fantastic, wonderful. Ooh. Oh, oh. 
Uh, if I was pitching a Star Trek six, I would have it called a Star Trek six Cybok around the clock. <laughs> where right. After the death of um, Cybok, Spock is, is still grieving over the death of his, his half brother that he uses the well-worn uh, mechanic of time travel to go back to the point where Cybok was, um, you know, had left Spock to go and try to his uh, quest to find Shakari, and Spock is gonna old Spock is gonna talk to young Spock and and try to convince Cybok to stay so that he'll never be apart from his brother's side. But when he does so, there's a deadly series of uh, consequences, which involve the Federation waging war on um, the planet Vulcan against the Vulcans themselves. Interesting. Because Cybok, even though he, he doesn't go to Shakari, he still has a, is very charismatic. And he manages to convince the Vulcans that it's the humans, it's the Federation that's keeping us down. And starts a civil war on Vulcan that the Federation has to come and quell. But who is at the helm of the USS Enterprise? No one but Captain Kirk. Who young Spock doesn't know at this time, but old Spock does. So that's Star Trek Six Cybok around the clock. So in the end, are they going to use a double time travel to reset everything to the way it was before? They're going to have to do double time travel with uh, a lot of forced comedy, I think. Uh. They have to. Okay, so here uh, Spock is going to say this line: "You're going to have to interrupt him, old Spock, while speaking in the voice of young Spock." And Frank Welker will do the screams. Yep, they got Frank Welker back to do the screams. Nice uh, shout-out for Star Trek Three there. Screams of Pon Far. You're welcome. Ah. Let's talk some sequel news. Hell yeah. What is a, a bit of current movie sequel or remake news or whatever that you think is interesting? Well, director Guillermo del Toro is going to direct the couch gag on this year's Simpsons Halloween episode. Really? Yep. Like how how does that work? Because it's a cartoon. Does he just storyboard it? Well, I I don't know if he's uh, I don't know if he's uh, going to storyboard it or if they're working off of his concept and he's handling the timing or or what. But it's going to be it's going to be his couch gag. Although knowing the way del Toro works, there probably will be a lot of storyboarding. Even if he's just giving the art direction to the storyboarders. Uh, one piece of news I found pretty interesting is Fox is has committed to at least do one season of a show called Gotham that would focus on a young Commissioner Gordon. Which is is interesting, but at the same at the same time, now that we have the special effects technologies to do a superhero procedural with actual superheroes and powers worthy of, of, of the concept, why can't we get that kind of show on the air? Why does it always have to be so toned down? No, I'm not saying, I mean, I think it would be brilliant to do a show about a, a Commissioner Gordon. I think that would make a really good procedural. But, I mean, how much of the DC universe is going to be a part of that? I don't know. I th- I think it would be something more along the lines of, of Smallville or... I mean, I'd be surprised if they make it, and I haven't seen the show, so maybe it's not toned down, but certainly there's that, um, what is it, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. 
show, Agents of Shield. What is it called? That just came out. Oh uh, yeah, a- a- Mar- Marvel Agents of Shield. I think is the <laughs> show. A terrible title. Have you seen it? Uh, yes, I was actually going to talk about it on the what you watch in segment. Oh, that, well, then we'll table it for that. But that looks like it doesn't. You know, you're not dealing with the A-listers in that show necessarily. So maybe Gotham would you have like a a version of the Joker before he went crazy or something? I suppose I suppose you could. Uh, and in fact, I'm, I'm sure that would be a part of it. I'm sure they would have a whole arc where it's eventually revealed that the villain is the guy who's going to become the Joker. But I mean, that's kind of the the thing is that you the <laughs> temptation is that you're going to yeah. have him go up against some Batman villains, but they really they are not Batman villains until Batman shows up. Well, does that mean there'd be a character on the series called Bruce? It would never be Batman, sort of like how uh, Clark was never really Superman in the costume well, on the Smallville. I'm sure they'd make ref- I'm sure there would be references to to the Wayne family <laughs> and and whatnot. But uh, I can just but- imagine if they did a Joker episode, you would have to do the uh, like you know they call this guy some other name the whole time, and at the end they say like, "Come on, man, stop being such a Joker," and he breaks out into that laugh. I don't. I don't think as they, it fades to black. I don't think they'd be that blatant with it. I think they would just have him doing the laugh. Could be. I mean, you know what they did in that. Um, what is that? Birds of Prey series. Oh yes, where they had a scene where uh, Batman was fighting the Joker, and a stunt double played the Joker, but Mark Hamill dubbed over the voice. That's right. Which was actually pretty effective. Well, he's 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 the perfect voice for it. All right. I don't really see any other sequel news I want to talk about. Is there anything for you? Uh, n- no, because the only other bit of sequel news that I would would be interested in talking about it is reverse troll baiting, and you you can't reverse troll bait. Words to live by. You can't reverse troll bait. Those who already know what I'm talking about probably already know what I'm talking about. I I don't, but we'll we'll leave it as a teaser. Let's see if the listeners can guess. <laughs> there will be no prizes whatsoever. So you were mentioning this earlier, Thrasher, so we can go to the segment. What you watching? Is well, what I watched was Marvel's Agents of Shield. The first episode, right? Uh yeah, the pilot. How was it? Well, I'm going to get the snarky comment out of the way and say that the pilot for Global Frequency has never looked so good. Huh. Those of you who have seen the pilot for Global Frequency will know what I'm talking about. But no, um, the, sh- the show's got a lot of promise, but uh, I'm, I'm already seeing some problems with this show. Uh, one being the pilot was a little bit too Whedon-y. As much as I like Joss Whedon, there there were there were just there were one too many uh, or a few too many Whedon one-liners uh, in this show for me. Uh, almost to the point where I was having a hard time taking it seriously when it wanted to be taken seriously. Uh, second, I really wish there was an established Marvel comic book character in this show. I really don't understand uh, why there isn't some established third-tier Marvel hero that is part of the S.H.I.E.L.D. team. The thing I don't get, and I'm sure it explains this in the first episode, is they had a pretty decent moment in the Avengers where uh, that one guy dies. Agent Coulson. Agent Coulson. 
and he's up in front and all the previews going like I'm back. Uh, it's <laughs> it's funny you mention that. Okay, because uh, that seems to cheapen just from the commercials alone a pretty good sort of and Whedon does this a lot, but a gotcha moment in the Avengers. Well, that's that's actually one of the things I like because it's mentioned when he show he shows up very early on with a really funny like fake dramatic reveal. Uh, and and he you know he rattles off some exposition explaining why he's not dead, and then one scene later it's revealed that he that it's revealed that that exposition is a lie. That's just what he thinks happened. Okay. So there is something going on with why we saw him die in the Avengers and why he's back now, but clearly that's something that's going to be revealed later, and they'll probably they'll probably build a more significant story arc out of it, and that I actually like. Well, that's not bad, but do you think that? <coughs> excuse me. There could be room for like a, a Mark Ruffalo cameo as Bruce Banner down the line. I'm sure. I think it's, I think it's inevitable that, like, you know, that if if the show gets desperate for ratings, I'm sure they're going to get one of the big name Marvel actors to show up, and I'm sure that the season finale is going to have a cameo by one of the uh, one of the established uh, Marvel Marvel hero actors. Just uh, from the commercials for this, I'm getting a heroes vibe. Well, that that's the commercial's fault. That's the only way they know how to market this kind of show. Uh, watching it, I didn't feel any kind of hero's vibe at all. And there was some clever stuff in it. But uh, it, it does not feel to me like this movie takes place in the Marvel Universe. But as a result, they had to keep reminding me that it's supposed to take place in the Marvel Universe. Okay. It doesn't use any established characters, and it doesn't use any established villains, and that really disappoints me when there is so much source material they could be working with uh, from Marvel. Yeah, you know, the the ratings on the premiere episode were, were through the roof, so I have to see if people stick with it. I mean, I, I am a bit surprised this is what they did for, you know, the Disney-Marvel thing. You know, they can do whatever the hell they want as a TV show, and and this is what they do. Well, it's 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 probably going to be a procedural. Um, I really, w- uh, my personal choice. I really wish they would have done Heroes for Hire. I think that would have made a much better uh, a, a Marvel TV show. You know, at one point they were trying to do The Punisher as a TV show. I could see that. Where it's, see it, that. it would have been more of a procedural, but The Punisher would kind of be on the fringe. I don't know. I I could see that working. Um, but uh, that's a character they'll probably want to stick with stick within movies. In the Guillermo del Toro you were talking about, at one point he was trying to get another version of the Hulk as a TV show off the ground. I do remember that. Uh, it, it, well, I guess I guess my my verdict on the on Agents of Shield, the pilot, it was a very interesting pilot. Uh, I'm going to give it two more episodes to really wow me. But if I but if it doesn't make a really good impression on me in two more episodes, I'm probably not going to watch this until it's canceled and all shows up on Netflix. Now, at the end of the first episode, does it have a real neat sort of gotcha or to be continued thing? Where it's like, well, I can't it, wait it what doesn't they do have. Next. It doesn't have a gotcha. I was actually waiting for there to be something after yeah. the credits. Interesting enough, it doesn't have a gotcha. But what it does have is a reference. To like classic Marvel because the the Agent Coulson has this old car which they 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 mentioned that it's like an old piece of decommissioned Shield equipment that he uses. Uh, and what's kind of fun and what the hell? Skip ahead a minute if you don't like spoilers. If you consider this a spoiler, uh, is that at the end 
you know, they get an alert. He's like, oh, we'll have to get there quickly. And he flips a switch and his car flies, which is an established part of S.H.I.E.L.D. S.H.I.E.L.D. has had flying cars since the late 60s. Hmm. And I, I kind of like that they preserve that one over-the-top element. That being said, now that they've established that he has a flying car, then I don't want to see them not using that car when it would be really useful to use that car. Gotcha. I watched something Star Trek-related, because I've had Star Trek on the brain. We've been talking Star Trek quite a lot here in the sequel cast. Yeah. And I watched a documentary um, called Trek Nation. Mm. This was produced by and narrated uh, by Rod Roddenberry, one of Gene Roddenberry's sons. Uh, Maybe his only son. I'm not quite sure about that. I think it was his only son. I have no idea. Um, Let's see. Did Rod uh, Roddenberry have any siblings? I don't know. Here we go. He had two daughters, and Rod Roddenberry was his only son. Um, Hmm. Not so coincidentally... Rod Roddenberry's middle name is Wesley. Uh, not bad. Thinking Wesley Crusher? Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I think... Uh, it's interesting that he, he preemptively named his son after that character. Uh, yes. Um, and through it all, a, as a narrator, Trek Nation is really about Rod Roddenberry not really caring for Star Trek at all as a kid and being, being even as a, teen, a young adult... Being, uh, you know, frankly, sort of jealous of the attention his father foisted on Star Trek, and his father was, uh, you know, was was not a faithful man in his marriage, would sleep around with women constantly, and all these things, and not spend much time on his son. And um, so you get some really interesting personal moments where Rod Roddenberry interviews actors and his own mother, and all these things. And yet, Rod Roddenberry, as a narrator, as a personality. Is, is comes off as a real conceited asshole. Really? Which makes it both interesting and frustrating to watch. It's taken me like three different tries to get through this whole thing. Not because the material isn't interesting, but there'll be shots of him like looking in the distance and being like, I didn't understand what Star Trek meant to so many people. I, I just didn't get it. Now, do you think he inherited that from his father, or do you think that he's secretly William Shatner's son and he inherited that from William Shatner? Mm. I don't know, because they show some vintage clips of Gene uh, Roddenberry, uh, the creator of Star Trek, of course. And they go into a really interesting bit where... um, Are you familiar with Next Generation that much? Uh, Indeed I am. Okay, right. So... After Gene Roddenberry died, it would have been around like in the fifth season somewhere. The main writers on the show really wanted to um, kind of shake things up with the characters, make things more dramatic. And uh, they were arguing on the original Star Trek show, the characters could have emotions and slap each other and yell and scream. And on The Next Generation, everything was stiff because Gene Roddenberry had a vision of the future that humanity was perfect and there was no arguments. And because of that, it limited the dramatic potential. But after Roddenberry died, um, I think the head writer on Next Generation said, well, Gene would have done this and Gene would have done this. And so a lot of stuff was was sort of compromised from what a lot of the writers and indeed a lot of the cast wanted to do. So, I mean, you get revelations like that in this documentary that, that are fascinating. You get Rod Roddenberry talks to George Lucas about Star Trek. Interesting. Yeah, uh, I would actually. I would like to hear his comments on that. Yeah, no, he, he 
says some pretty interesting things. And what's also pretty cool is uh, near the end, you, you know, it took Rod Roddenberry 10 years to produce this documentary because he didn't know what he was doing, really. Um, and because of that, he had a chance to... Oh, what am I trying to say? Uh, he got to talk to J.J. Abrams as he was doing the Star Trek reboot and show J.J. Abrams a clip of Gene Roddenberry from years ago saying in the 60s, or in the in the 70s after the show had been canceled, it would be fun for a young filmmaker to do a movie about Kirk and Spock meeting each other as young men, which essentially is what they did with the reboot. Indeed. Um. So it's pretty... And actually, Rod Roddenberry was a technical advisor for the first three seasons of... Uh, Gene Roddenberry's Earth Final Conflict. Oh, wow. Which Rod Roddenberry has... uh, I've never seen that show, did you? Uh, I have, yes. I I have not seen all of it, but I've seen a good chunk of it. That show is an interesting animal. Five seasons? Each Each one more deviated from the original concept is the last. Apparently it was based, like, very loosely on a pile of notes that Gene Roddenberry had written in a folder stuffed in a closet oh no he supposedly had some huge idea notebooks that that have been plundered at various times uh for for new series and, and books but this earth final conflict i guess like rod roddenberry said his notes in the series as an advisor were do we have to have another gun battle why is that needed and he kept on getting <laughs> shot down no pun intended every time Well, I think I think that was just like that. Like every procedural in UPN had to have a gunfight in it at the time. <laughs> yeah. So, but Trek Nation, I would recommend it. It's a little bit dry at times. Um, I don't think Rod Roddenberry comes off especially well. He seems sort of humbled by the end of it, but like, there's a scene where he's talking to a. Uh, uh, oh, who? What's the actor that plays uh, Wesley Crusher? Will Wheaton, right? Indeed. And Rod Roddenberry gets very jealous hearing Will Wheaton talk about how uh, Gene Roddenberry would stand up and defend him at conventions, saying, don't talk about Wesley Crusher that way. And then in some way, Gene Roddenberry is more of a son to a fictional character in one of his Star Trek shows than his own son. More of a father. Uh, yes. Hmm. You know, and if, and if there there could be a movie in that, I could see in a few a few years down the line a a biopic about Gene Roddenberry that touches on all that. Very so. I wonder who you'd get to play uh, Gene Roddenberry. He has Shatner, that distinctive face. <laughs> I don't know about Shatner, but um, hmm. Anyway, I I think it's a. Uh, Worth a watch. You can currently watch Trek Nation if you're in the United States on Netflix. Watch instantly. Uh, they also released it on DVD and stuff. So, Trek Nation is not a great title for a documentary, by the way. Mm, yeah, I, t- I take your point. But he couldn't say Trekkies because that was already a, a more goofy documentary. What about Trekkers? Trekkers, maybe. No, Trekkers. I like to invent new words. I was just thinking for a second of like a Star Trek stand-up comedian gets bashed over the years by hecklers. <laughs> called Trecklers because he's... Why so did William Shatner... Uh, Shecky Spock. Yeah. Why did William Shatner 
never used the Vulcan nerve pitch on himself to knock himself out when he had trouble sleeping. <laughs> I just don't get it. What's the deal with a transporter? I mean, could it violate the Heisenberg uncertainty principle anymore? Oh, I guess one, you want to do one more last what you're watching really quick? Sure, why not? What you're watching? I've, uh, I don't know about watching, but I've been uh, watching a, oh, God, I fucked that up. <laughs> I've been Self-hypnosis tapes about erasing your memory? Indeed. No, um, so a few years ago, William Shatner did a documentary called The Captains, in which he interviewed uh, all the different actors that played Star Trek Captains. Cool. And he took footage that it didn't use in the documentary and used it in a TV show, which just plays, like, deleted scenes from that documentary. But they're, they're stitched together pretty well. But I hilariously watched an episode that is focused on... Um, William Shatner did an episode about himself. <laughs> Does he interview himself? Uh, no, he has uh, um, the actress that played Captain uh, Janeway. Oh, Katie Mulgrew. Uh, Katie Mulgrew interviews him. Cool. And she's right on target and doesn't really shy away and basically says he's a man of massive ego. And he, you know, they get into some more negative parts of his, his um, character, which is interesting, but that you would do a documentary TV show about other people playing captains and then do an episode uh, about yourself. It's just bizarre. And then William Shatner shrugs it off in the narration at the beginning of the episode. I'm William Shatner, and this episode's on William Shatner. What? I had to do it. I was contractually obligated. I like the idea of Shatner just talking about contracts he's been involved in. Yeah, I mean, he's really done so much uh, television over the years, whether it's Boston Legal or T.J. Hooker or Star Trek or Rescue 911 or... Um, he's been doing a lot more nonfiction stuff lately. He had a show called Shatner's Raw Nerve that was an interview show. I still I still miss him on uh, on uh, Boston Legal. I think that was the perfect part for him. Denny Crane was great, and just the way he played off James Spader was very good, too. Oh, it was brilliant. Although, season by season, James Spader gained so much weight that he started to look like William Shatner. <laughs> well, they were both... Think of it as they're both becoming the same person, and had the show lasted one more season, they would have merged into this kind of, like, hut creature. Maybe. <laughs> A two-headed Shatner Spader. Who is good at fucking, smoking, and giving stirring speeches in the courtroom. Well, what have you been watching to wrap this up? Uh, well, because I've been uh, sick this week, the only other things I've been watching have been the Star Trek episodes I've been recording sequel commentaries to. And how has it been revisiting the animated series and all that stuff? Pretty pretty good. Uh, already uh, already recorded uh, an episode of the... Uh, I decided to do all the Tribble episodes. So we've already done the Trouble with Tribbles. That'll probably be posting soon. Uh, I did the follow-up, uh, More Trouble, More Tribbles, which was an animated series episode. And uh, the animated series is, is a part of Star Trek that lots of people don't even know exist, and lots of other people wish they didn't know it, wish they didn't know that it existed. Uh, but it's still an amusing episode, and so I still need to record uh, an audio commentary, a sequel commentary, for uh, the Deep Space Nine episode Trials and Tribulations, which makes the whole thing a trilogy. I think I'll end up doing that as three separate episodes instead of one big one. 
Oh, I, I no, I would, I would do it as three separate episodes as well. It would be, it would be very, it would be very bizarre to have to have the episodes like queued up and ready to start the moment I got to the end of a segment. Gee, sorry, I'm distracted. I'm looking at a picture of what modern day Sean Connery on vacation. Oh, what kind of bra is he wearing? Uh, I'll show you. His his wife is quite a bit shorter than him, and she looks a little bit like a troll. Oh, dear. I don't like what you said about my wife, Matt. I don't know. Take a look and try to argue with me. Oh, my gosh. He looks like my grandfather. But scroll down. You get his wife next to him. (laughs) I I think that's, that's very cruel what you said. Now, I do like the guy in the background of this photo who's, like, so not casually taking a photo of Sean Connery. Yeah. And and then he's texting in the next one. Dude, I'm behind Sean Connery. <laughs> and, then, and then they just, like, sh- cut to... Oh, they've got, like, a photo... I, I haven't even been reading what this art, this thing you sent me, but then they've got, like, Sean... Then they've got James Bond naked in the bath, and you can see everything. Uh, and then, after that, Woody Allen, for some reason. Just because Woody Allen has that same sort of hat, I think. Well, the hat's popular among men of a certain age. But Sean Connery, he's stuck with his retirement. I'll give him credit. I, I hope he does another movie. I'd hate to be League of Extraordinary Gentlemen to be his last live-action role. Well, I mean, he's left such a legacy that that being his last film, I don't think that's going to tarnish him at all. Well, no. And again, that's a... Very loosely is a connection to Star Trek V because he was supposed to play Star... Cybok. Cybok. Although, what if he played Starbuck in Battlestar Galactica? You know, I wouldn't mind seeing him act as a cameo in that newer Battlestar Galactica series. But... (laughs) I don't know. I don't know who he'd play. I don't know either. Just some... uh, Visiting Captain of the Week. All right. Well, we've done a, a good job, I think, here talking about Star Trek V, The Final Frontier, in this episode of the sequel cast. Despite our best efforts, yes. yes uh, so tune in next week, in which we'll talk about Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. What do you consider which is that? a brilliant title. The last of the original series Star Trek films, or does Generations count? I mean, uh, well, Generations is a crossover. Yeah, and I guess Undiscovered Country still has the whole crew. Indeed it does. Indeed it does. And it says volumes about who was willing to do Generations when the best they could get besides Kirk was uh, Chekhov and Scotty. Mm. But that's for another time. Um, donate to the show, SequelCast.com slash donate to donate via PayPal. Uh, check out the Facebook page, Facebook.com slash SequelCast. Again, on Twitter, I'm at SequelCast. I'm at Internet Mayor. For the SequelCast, this is Matt. And Thrasher. Saying... Why does God need a starship? I don't know, you green-blooded Vulcan. I don't know, you green-blooded Vulcan. I'm Zap Brannigan, and I'm not wearing any pants. And I'm Ah. John Lovitz. Well, well, well. John Lovitz, what are you doing here? This is my dressing room. It's too late. I've already pupated and turned into Sylvester Stallone. How are you doing? Hey, check out my film Bullet to the Head. I presume it's on DVD now. Those box office results were certainly a bullet to the head. Ha ha ha, yes!
Oh boy, that's uh, that's a weird tangent. <laughs> just we we crammed our twelve worst impressions into just <laughs> into under 30, two minutes. It's got to be a record. Just under two minutes, pretty good. The sequel cast is a hipster goblin production. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet.